0: In 1850, French economist Frédéric Bastiat wrote about the Law of Unintended Consequences. In the economic sphere, an act, a habit, an institution, a law, produces not only one effect, but a series of effects. Of these effects, the first alone is immediate. It appears simultaneously with its cause. It is seen. The other effects emerge only subsequently. They are not seen. We are fortunate if we foresee them. The concept of the unseen effects of a law, the unintended consequences, is a familiar point. Basically, it means that a law can produce futile or self-defeating results. For instance, minimum wage laws may actually reduce employment. Regulations on new sources of air pollution may actually increase pollution by perpetuating old and dirtier sources of fuel. Because our system of enacting laws and legislation is based on imperfect knowledge, the unintended consequences can sometimes be more dramatic than the intended ones. In 1946, the town of Dover, Massachusetts, enacted a land use bylaw prohibiting the construction of religious schools in residential neighborhoods. In an effort to reverse this bylaw and prohibit other towns from passing similar bylaws, the Massachusetts legislature enacted a statute prohibiting municipalities from passing bylaws that restrict the use of land for religious purposes. Known as the Dover Amendment, the legislature has expanded the reach of this law over the past several decades to include protections for educational facilities, agricultural uses, and other uses. Following the 1970s energy crisis, in which consumers saw the price of fuel jumped 350% in a year and significant shortages, President Carter and his administration began pushing renewable sources of energy, including solar energy. In 1985, the Massachusetts legislature followed suit by expanding the Dover Amendment to include solar energy systems in a similar manner to religious and educational facilities. The 1985 statute titled, Enact Promoting Solar Energy Systems from Local Regulation, states the following, quote, No zoning ordinance or bylaw shall prohibit or unreasonably regulate the installation of solar energy systems or the building of structures that facilitate the collection of solar energy, except where necessary to protect the health, safety, or welfare Thirty-five years later, in Lexington, Massachusetts, a developer sought to build a 4,000-panel, one-megawatt solar farm. From a zoning perspective, the use was permissible in Lexington. However, it bordered a residential neighborhood in Waltham. The problem for the developer was that the access road to the facility would go directly through a residential neighborhood in Waltham, which was inconsistent with Waltham's zoning bylaws. Waltham rejected the access road for this type of use, and the developer sued citing the protections of the Dover Amendment for solar energy. Case went up to the Massachusetts High Court. Will Massachusetts residents be forced to live next door to massive solar farms? Or will communities be permitted to preserve their residential character? This case examines the unintended consequences of the town of Dover's 1946 bylaws. This. It's Tracer Lane Realty versus Waltham. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff. Today, we welcome back friend of the show, Ben Robbins, the brilliant senior attorney at New England Legal Foundation, who's filed so many influential amicus briefs in the highest courts in Massachusetts and throughout the country. He filed an amicus brief in support of a developer in this case. Great to see you, Ben. Thanks for joining again. Well, thank you, Bob. And thanks for the very generous introduction. I appreciate that. Well, it's all true. It's all true. Cutting to the chase, Ben, the Supreme Judicial Court sided with the developer your position and held that Waltham's bylaw scheme violated the Dover Amendment because it was unduly restrictive on the installation or construction of solar energy systems. Specifically, according to the court, Waltham only allowed large-scale solar energy systems in 1% to 2% of the town, which, again, in the court's view, that was not enough. However, the court provided no guidance about what an appropriate level might be. Would it be 5%, 10%, 15%? As a lawyer and also as a member of my town's planning board, who's been involved in drafting land use regulations, I found this lack of guidance both unsatisfying as well as a little unsettling. So I want to do a little hypothetical to return to my unintended consequences thesis for a moment. And basically what I'm trying to figure out here is, on one hand, does this require towns to allow solar farms in residential neighborhoods? Or on the flip side, does this give towns license to basically prohibit Solar farms with carefully crafted bylaws. So think of Waltham's position in this case. This is just the, the background. Waltham's position is contrary to what the SJC concluded, they claim that we allow solar in 100% of our neighborhoods because solar can be installed as an accessory use on anyone's building or home. The court ignored this position altogether. So now, now picture this in the wake of the decision, town passes bylaws prohibiting all accessory uses, can't have an accessory use, but it allows for large scale solar projects on 15% of the land. Okay. Not the one or 2% that Waltham permitted, 15% of the land. But here's the hitch. It carefully picked out the zones. And, and so it only applies that 15% only applies to the highest density, most expensive real estate in the town. What we're talking about, large, mixed-use, multifamily projects. So yes, from a technical perspective, the town has opened a substantial portion of the town land to solar. But as a practical matter, solar will never be developed on these parcels because the economics wouldn't make sense. So my read on Tracer is that this type of a scheme might actually pass muster under the Dover Amendment. Because they technically opened it up to a critical mass of land. But in reality, they prohibited solar without saying so.
1: What say you, Ben Robbins? I don't think that would pass muster. And if, if I could back up, and I'm not trying to undermine the, the carefully crafted, hypothetically presented, I am deeply troubled by the court's decision for the very reason that you've identified in having... The need to create this hypothetical to test the court's percentage approach. The court approached it entirely incorrectly, in my view. It failed to apply the plain language of the statute. The decision should have been presented this way. The court's reasoning should have been presented this way. We know that the statute bars a municipality from prohibiting someone's use of their land for a solar energy system unless it can provide a justification to show that such a prohibition is necessary to protect the public health, wealth, welfare, or safety. Let's just call that, in shorthand, the public interest. That is, the the local government must show that a prohibition of someone's desired use of their, their land for the protected purpose of solar energy systems must be prohibited as necessary to protect the public interest, almost like a compelling interest, strict scrutiny standard under federal Supreme Court constitutional jurisprudence. This decision should have been presented this way. The city of Waltham summarily denied Tracer Lane the right to build this access road. Again, it's, it's the access road we're talking about, not the solar farm itself, which is located in Lexington. The city of Waltham summarily denied chaser Lane the right to build this necessary ancillary, if you will, ancillary structure for the sake of building and then maintaining and also providing the power lines, you know, for the supplying of solar-generated electricity back into the grid without, summarily meaning without any justification. It did not even try to show that such a prohibition was necessary to protect the public interest. So my point in my brief, and I think what the court failed to see on the plain language of the statute, and consistent with the court's own decision, as you properly alluded to, the Dover decision itself in the early 50s, where the court understood that prohibition means when the plaintiff, who typically is a residential property owner, wants to pursue the protected use. There was, yes, a religious educational facility here. It's an ancillary solar structure that is the access road for the solar array, or farm, if you'd like to call it that, it's fine. In this case, the statute says that there can be no prohibition unless there is a justification for that prohibition. The city did not provide any justification. It just simply summarily concluded, well, that's not allowed in our zoning bylaws. This is a residential neighborhood. No solar facilities are allowed there. That should have been the basis for the court's decision. The court failed to in my view, fail to apply the necessary language that is, this is a, an unlawful prohibition. I, Throughout my brief, I was very careful. to. It's a summary prohibition. The statute defers to local government when local government decides that for the sake of protecting the public interest, we must ban your desired use of your particular property for a solar structure, whether it be the farm itself in some cases, whether it be in this case an Ancelier Road, it could be the power lines, it could be any aspect of that necessary component, if you will, of the solar system. The legislature understood that unlike the Dover Amendment, which again, properly framed this whole case in the statutory scheme at, at play here, unlike the Dover Amendment, which bans an outright prohibition and doesn't provide an exception, it only requires there must be reasonable regulations as to the construction and it specifies the various dimensional requirements of the religious educational facility set back, you know, all the various component parts. Here, the legislature understood that, you know, in some cases it might be required that local government in its wisdom concludes and makes the necessary showing that we must prohibit your, that is typically the planets your desired use of your property for the solar structure that you wish to build. But they, of course, must provide a justification for that. It must be necessary, except as as you read the language, except where necessary to protect the public interest. There was no showing whatsoever here, not even a weak showing. There was absolutely no showing. So the point is, in my view, this decision could have been much shorter and much clearer, and it would have avoided your very well founded concerns about a slippery slope created. The court should have concluded. Okay, the city of Waltham prohibited Chaser Lane from using its property to build this access road, which again is a necessary ancillary structure in order to build and maintain and then also allow for you know the power lines from the solar farm in, in ordering Lexington. That they prohibited this and they provided no reasoning whatsoever and they provided no rationale, no justification. That should have been the end of the decision And instead, what apparently the court did, and and this is just my understanding without any express language in the decision, the court seemed to have accepted the city's position that it had argued below in the land court that a prohibition does not apply just to the plaintiff property owner, the land of the plaintiff property owner itself. But a prohibition also is a municipal-wide analysis so that if the city or town, in this case, the city of Waltham, as you properly identified in the facts here, allows even a slight percentage of its municipal, within its municipal borders, of land somewhere in some other zone district miles away from where an access road would make sense and miles away from where (laughs) Tracer Lane actually owned property, if they allow it somewhere, within the city limits, then it's not a prohibition. That's wrong. That's wrong for so many reasons. That's wrong on the plain language of the statute. It's wrong on the court's own understanding of what prohibition means. When we go back to, as you again identified, this all began with the Dover Amendment, which is now codified in the second paragraph of of this section three of chapter 48. And it's not longer than how it read in, let's say, 1950. But the point is the court has always consistently understood that prohibition means and that's the whole point of a protected land use it means when the plaintiff property owner comes forward and wants to build or make use of its of its property of its parcel of land for a protected use here it's a solar related structure in in the Dover case it was a religious educational facility um, and now we know it also covers childcare facilities and other such protected uses the point is the the unlawful prohibition happens under the solar energy provision that we're talking about in this case, when the city denies the property owner the right to use their land for, for the intended solar-related purpose and provides no rationale. So it's one thing if the city came forward with a reason or set of reasons, and that could be, that's fair game for scrutiny. Is this a sufficient showing? Is this necessary? But the point is, they didn't offer any reason. So it was an easier case, I think, for the SJC just to conclude, you know, you failed to comply, you, the city, I mean, with your duty under the solar energy provision, much like the strict scrutiny analysis, you had to show a compelling reason why you prohibited Tracer Lane from using its its land for this intended access road. And you didn't offer any reason, let alone a, a reason that was too weak to so Survive scrutiny. You've provided no reason, so that should have ended the inquiry under the, uh, under the solar energy provision. And that way, the court would have would not have had to reach this, if you will, this land percentage analysis. Well, citywide, there's one per two between one to two two percent of land in the industrial industrial zone district that would have arguably permitted this use. Where we don't know property wheat tracer lane, and where it wouldn't make sense to pull an access road. How could we do that when here it is the bordering town of Lexington, where the farm is set up, and that's our property. You just want to make a straight beeline to that through our access road in this residential district. So, um, I, don't, I don't want to cut you off. I'm sure you have questions, but the court, in ignoring and leapfrogging over the necessary prohibition requirement, that is, prohibition unless justified, unless necessary showing, they turn to the language, unreasonable regulation or reasonable regulation, which is not applicable here for so many reasons. A reasonable regulation as used throughout the statute and as understood by the court itself in other Dover Amendment type cases, not about solar energy, not about this provision, but for example, under the Dover Amendment itself with religious and educational facilities, such as the BU case, and also involving, let's say, childcare facilities like the Rogers case. The court has no problem understanding in those other cases, that reasonable regulation is to be distinguished from prohibition. The leg- legislature would not use two terms that mean the same thing. You know, the general rule of construction every word means something and means something different. Nothing is superfluous and unnecessarily repetitive. Prohibition is an outright bar, an outright ban on the use of my land for the desired protected use. A, a reasonable or unreasonable regulation refers to the dimensional and structural requirements that the municipality imposes on me when I'm allowed to pursue the protected use. But I'm now subject to a host of regulations or bylaws or ordinances that I argue, I could argue, are unduly burdensome. They impose such a limit on my intended use of my land such that it virtually prevents me from building an Making effective use for the intended purpose and without any contra or sufficient countervailing the public interest. It it doesn't serve any offsetting protective purpose that justifies such burdens. That's an unreasonable regulation. And that's, and and just so you know, and you probably already know this, and 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 maybe our listeners already know this, but in those other provisions of the section three, such as the Dover Amendment paragraph itself within paragraph two. And the child care facility paragraph, paragraph three. The legislature has expressly linked, has explained that there may be reasonable regulations concerning, I'm just going to quickly read this so you, under, you know, get a flavor concerning the bulk and height of structures and determining yard sizes, lot area, setbacks, open space parking, and building coverage requirements. That language is used in both the Dover Amendment paragraph itself and the child care facility paragraph itself to make it clear that. In those paragraphs, at least, there shall not be a prohibition, but the local authority is allowed to make subject that land use, that protected use, to reasonable regulations concerning those named, if you will, dimensional and structural requirements. We get to the solar provision. Fair enough, the legislature, in a sense, gives more discretion to the local government because it doesn't, first of all, allows for an outright prohibition when sufficiently justified by showing that it's necessary to protect the public interest but it also allows for any reasonable regulation. It bars any unreasonable. So obviously, by necessary implication, it allows for reasonable regulations, but it doesn't restrict those regulations to those named dimensional and structural requirements that I just read that are applied to a religious and educational facility in paragraph two or childcare facility in paragraph three. So it's wide open as to reasonable, reasonable regulations that a local government can impose. But the point is, we don't reach that language in this case because it was an outright prohibition without the necessary justific- justification. And that's all the court had to decide here to aff- to affirm the lower court. That is the land court decision to allow trace land to pursue its its intended use of the land for that access road. That doesn't prevent, that would not prevent local government in this or any case to justify prohibition with a necessary showing, we can't allow you, you rate the concern about solar farms in, let's say, a dense or a residential neighborhood, which, you know, was not the case here. Again, it's, it's the town of Lexington that, when, the, by the way, that, that was a commercial district where that farm is to be built, but nothing under the solar energy provision would stop local government with a necessary showing to justify an outright prohibition. I'm sorry, you cannot use your residential parcel of land to build a solar farm. Or it could also allow local government, such as in this case, where, okay, the access road can't be prohibited. We didn't, and we can't think of, let's say, they can't think of any reasons to justify the outright ban. But we want to impose certain requirements on materials used for the building of that road, the width of that road, the height, let's say, of the utility lines that carry the wires, you know, the electrical return of the harnessed energy from the farm in bordering Lexington. They could impose certain dimensional requirements. And then, of course, Tracer Lane or any property would be free to argue, OK, I understand your local concerns, but we argue those are unreasonable the way that the SJC has defined that term, which is unduly burdensome imposing such restrictions, economic and, 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 and structural and otherwise, such that we can't make effective use. Of our land for the intended purpose. And we argue there isn't a sufficient offsetting or countervailing public benefit. You know, and then of course it's for litigation, it's for a court to decide who wins on that argument. But the point is, in this case, it could have been a very simple decision. We wouldn't have had to get into the morass of which which you're properly and right on the mark identifying, wait a minute, this is one to two percent. That's not okay, but what if it were 15%? Ah, but what if it were in a different zone, district of of a particular town or or city? Those are all fair questions, but the court could have avoided all that just by reaching the decision. You summarily prohibited this. You didn't provide a rationale, end of story, as opposed to, well, you allow them to go ahead, but you required such restrictions on the, you know, that would be an unreasonable regulation inquiry. Restrictions on the access road itself, that would be fair game for a case specific on these facts, on our intended use. We argued these are unreasonable. The city, of course, would argue, no, these are reasonable restrictions. That's fair game. That's case by case. And, and the court understands that's always going to be a careful balancing. The court, unfortunately, failed to apply the prohibition language, jumped right into its inapplicable, inapposite, unreasonable regulation prong of the statute and of its own jurisprudence. And, and hence, I think, unnecessarily complicated issue and unnecessarily created the very slippery slope that you properly identified. Well, let me jump in there. I I agree with your
0: analysis. And I think it would have been a much more straightforward and and cleaner analysis, the way that you've laid it out. I think to get to the heart of the matter, the main concern that I think most planners and land use lawyers are going to have with this decision is, and the biggest question that's going to be asked is, how do we preserve the residential character of our neighborhoods? Because you look at this decision, another head-scratching part of the analysis was essentially that preservation of the residential character of neighborhoods is a valid municipal purpose that's what the court said however on the flip side of things because of the way they did the analysis kind of conflating the the two issues the prohibition versus the unreasonable regulation they they've sort of they sort of went against that and they said well waltham scheme which if you listen to waltham they're basically saying yeah we allow solar and residential, but we allow it as an accessory use. So what do land use lawyers and planners do to avoid losing their neighbors, their neighborhoods to solar farms? Is there anything that they Mm -hmm. can do? For instance, and I'll be more concrete, under this analysis or even yours, which I I think is is Mm -hmm. more faithful to the text in the case law, could a planning board or a town pass a bylaw that says, We're only going to allow solar as an accessory use in residential neighborhoods.
1: I mean, that might survive if, again, that town in question makes the sufficient showing. I don't think it would be enough summarily just to assert, well, this is a residential neighborhood. End of inquiry. Clearly, it speaks for itself. The court has identified its legitimate local concern to preserve. And I, I understand that as a residential dweller myself to preserve the character, but to take that a step further, you can imagine a town or city rejecting a developer's proposal based on its dimensions. Now we're talking here about freestanding as opposed to, as you say, accessory use. That is my neighbor's rooftops. They have this great array of Tesla panels on the rooftop, state-of-the-art shingles, and they're getting great use from it. And I'm, I'm thrilled for the sake of the environment. You know, it's always very encouraging. And of course, again, the SJC itself is sensitive to not only the urgency we're all experiencing with climate change, but also with this 1985 statute, which on its face and by its own title, the court says, is urgently, even back in the 80s, for different reasons than we now face. In addition to the reasons we face now, the legislature mandated that solar energy be a favored development and and use of of, a clean source of energy. And there are, by the way, there are other aspects to the 1985 statutes that aren't just the codification, as we know, and as we're discussing here in section three, that is paragraph nine, concerning the solar energy protected use paragraph. But throughout the statutory scheme, the legislature is concerned about, was concerned in 85 and made it clear that it was trying to encourage, protect, but also encourage the development of solar energy. And of course, the urgency we know now is more than ever. But the point is, you can imagine a local government faced with a developer requesting to build a large array. Um, let's call it a farm or a panel array in a residential area. I don't think it's enough to say that, well, per se, because this is a freestanding structure and because it's a residential neighborhood, per se, that's that's our showing. We can prohibit you, we should, we should prevail. I don't think that would be enough. You can imagine, though, local government understanding. I think it's duties under this solar energy provision and the legislative scheme would perhaps make the showing, we will allow you to go ahead with a freestanding structure, but you have to reduce the scale. You can't have, let's say, 50 freestanding panels in this residential neighborhood. How about 25? How about cutting in half? How about reducing the height? How about, you know, you can imagine other adjustments that would then go to the unreasonable regulation problem. That is, we're not outright prohibiting you. We're going to allow you to go forward and we understand the necessity and and the legislative mandate favoring and and urging the development of of solar energy. But we also have our legitimate local concerns and we argue, we think it would be a reasonable set of regulations or restrictions, if you will, for you to pursue your use, your intended use of, again, your parcel of land for freestanding. Not accessory, but freestanding solar structure, but with certain limits, you have to scale it back, and there could be again litigation, argument back and forth about, well, we think you've gone too far. We, the property developer, we think you've gone too far, and this is part of the dynamic that the court itself understands. When in, in the past, in its other decisions involving the unreasonable regulation problem, and it understands that it's a careful balancing, but we, the developer, will perhaps argue that you've, we think you've gone too far, and that you're a effectively denying us the opportunity to build an efficient solar energy facility because you do need a certain number of cells that make up each panel that make up under a larger array. You do need a certain sufficient number to actually harness a su- sufficient amount of solar energy to make it worthwhile. I don't know enough about the unfortunately, the technology of these volto- photovoltaic cells that make up each module, that make up each array, but you can't, you can't have too too small a number, or else it's going to be too weak. It's not going to be in, make enough of a difference for the grid, you know. So there has to be a certain balancing, and and and, and the legislature understood, that and the SJC under, under, has understood that. So it might be the case that I think a local government, understanding its duties and and the limits under the solar energy provision, would understand that perhaps we can't just make an outright prohibition because we can't make a sufficient showing, but we could. Limit the intended use so that it doesn't unduly cause undue detriment to the surrounding residential area. Well, there might be concern about woodlands, you know, about felling of trees. You know, again, these are all factors that local government can seek to protect. I really want to drill down on this because I think that, you know, again, kind
0: of wearing my planning board hat, the big the big question is going to be: Well, how do we preserve our residential neighborhoods? And I'm thinking of You know, rural, low income housing neighborhood, you know, developer sees an opportunity to come in, build a massive, you know, solar farm freestanding, as you pointed out, you know, and and just basically bulldozes this neighborhood neighborhood to build, you know, what my my words I would characterize as a solar power plant and. I'm looking at this decision and and hearing what you're saying, and I'm not saying I disagree with you at all, but I'm I'm trying to figure out if that is something that would be permissible or if that's something that planning boards can guard against. And one of the things, and I know you and I are going to disagree on this because we've, we've talked about it a little bit before the interview, but one of the things that I have a really hard time believing is that solar energy system, in quotes, as that term is defined in the statute, actually includes this type of massive freestanding solar array. You look at the statute's definition of solar energy system, it defines it as a quote device or as a quote structural design feature for solar energy. It makes it sound like we're talking about solar panels on, on somebody's roof and not a one megawatt solar array, which could power literally hundreds of homes. And I think, and I I did some very amateurish research last weekend on this, but I think that the history sort of bears out my read of the text here, because when this statute was passed in 1985, the worldwide solar energy output was 20 megawatts worldwide. This solar power plant would have generated literally one-twentieth of the solar power in the world at that time. So I had a hard time believing that the legislature's reference to quote unquote device or quote structural design feature includes the type of freestanding solar farm that we're talking about. And that was an issue in this case. So from my perspective, and I'm looking at this, I'm trying to figure this out as a planning board member, whether or not we can go in and say, look at, this is mostly designed to prohibit. You're right you know, the use of, of solar. And if based on that, we can, from a reasonable perspective, you know, look at Tracer Lane, they say preserving the residential character is a legitimate municipal purpose. Can we go in and say in residential neighborhoods, you've got to, it's got to be an accessory use because that's going to create an automatic limitation, kind of like what you're saying. So you're saying, well, you can't prohibit freestanding, but you can, you know, prohibit the size or the amount of panels. And, and I guess my point is, well, if you say that you can only do it as an accessory use, then that's sort of self-limiting. You know, it can only be so many panels. It can only be so high because it's going to be on somebody's roof or on, on some building roof. So I'm looking at this and trying to figure this all out. And I'm, and I'm reading the language and looking at the history and saying, I don't even see how solar energy system, you know, is, is a solar power plant in my position. But again, I know you feel differently. I know practically no courts have grappled with this issue in the way that I've addressed it, at least not that any I, I've seen. So I feel
1: like I'm missing something.
0: So set
1: me straight on this, Beth. First of all, I mean, you raise, you raise a fair point. It wasn't raised here, so it wasn't litigated. So it wasn't really before the court and the court didn't have to opine on that. The issue here was, we you know, whether, whether or not this, once it was accepted that, There was a system at play here that is the the intended uh, solar array in Lexington. And this was going to be an access road, a necessary ancillary component. Was that a structure as, as as now I'm referring to this ninth paragraph, again, the solar energy provision building or structure, building of structures that facilitate the collection systems or the building of structures. So the legislature understands that there's system or structure. And so here, the easier issue was, well, is this access road a necessary a structure that falls under the statute the answer is yes because without that access right, you couldn't build the right or mean you couldn't build it maintain it and then of, of, of course provide the utility lines with the, the electric with the wiring for the for the electricity generated but to answer your larger and 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 more challenging question i don't see any limitation in the definition a device or structure design feature i understand feature sounds awfully specific but the term again solar energy system that seems to be the term of art that's the accepted use these days. I don't see any reference to to a large, it's called solar panel array or form, whatever you want to call it, that is an array of interconnected, several panels usually arranged in a parallel, you know, in connected structure, whatever. I don't see that as referred to as a power plant. I, I see the language being used generally as system. And what's telling to me is that the court didn't even as it sometimes do, does, sua sponte, drop in a footnote, we, we leave for another day the issue whether or not a large-scale panel, kind of your question, large-scale panel, array qualifies as a solar energy system under the statute. They didn't raise that concern. I don't think that argument would succeed. I do agree that you're identifying something about the definition, which is a little bit meager sounding and maybe of, of its time and, and antiquated and maybe wasn't anticipating uses of the larger scale that we, I don't know if it's uniquely faced today or uniquely or capable of today. I don't know enough about the history comparing 1985 to 2022 or the 2020s, whatever. So I, I can't speak to that. I wish I could, but it does seem to be sufficiently porous a definition, a device or structural design feature. Yes. A feature. What is, you know, why is feature there? And then of course the rest of it does fit like a glove. Substantial purpose. And if you put in some ellipses of which is to, da, 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 to collect, store, and distribute solar energy for da, 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 da electricity generating, that's exactly what's being intended to be done here. So the rest of it does fit like a glove that is sufficiently broad to capture what's the intended purpose here. But you know, you you raise a fair point. It could have been more artfully worded. The court doesn't seem to be even suicidal, a he troubled by the application to what, again, not what's being done in Waltham, because that's just the access road, but the system that's being built, intended to be built in neighboring Lexington, which again, that is a commercially zoned district. So I'm not sure if that would fly. Again, you're right to say, you know, it wasn't raised by the court. So you're right to say, well, maybe, you know, this court hasn't squarely addressed that. I don't know if they would be persuaded by by your argument, but it simply wasn't presented here. So let's I guess we can only proceed on the assumption that since it apparently didn't trouble the court, that solar energy system and again, the solar energy provision also talks about and structures, hence the road here, supporting structures. So um let's assume that for now that unless the court tells us otherwise, or the legislature, that systems capture, capture the the, uh, freestanding arrays. So I think that the second sort of component of your question, I mean, this is going to sound like a dodge, but I I mean it sincerely that it becomes a very case-specific inquiry about whether or not a local government could outright prohibit, uh, let's assume a residential property owner's intended construction of a freestanding solar panel array in that neighborhood, or whether they, and that is whether they could Whether they made the sufficient showing that based on this particular residential neighborhood with its particular dimensions, existing dimensions, and its particular concerns, environmental and otherwise, we are going to prohibit you and this is our showing. Now let's litigate to see. Well, assuming there's litigation on it, let's see if that was a sufficient showing under the statute. Was it necessary? Was Was the outright ban necessary to protect the public interest? And it might be the case you might very well be right. So again, I think each case might be different. Some some towns might be able to outright prohibit an intended a a, resi- a residential property or intended use of their parcel of land for a freestanding array. That might be sufficient. They might the local government might make on those facts sufficient showing. In other cases, there may not be enough for sufficient showing for an outright ban. But local government. Can limit the dimensions. Can limit the materials. Not not. I guess there's certain hardware that has to be built in order to build the actual cells. But the dimensions, the size, the 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 uh, perhaps in terms of an access, to, you know, the hours of use, which also might be subject to other general local zoning requirements about industrial traffic. You know, g- trucks and vans going up and down this this road. I understand, you know, there could, be, there could be reasonable limits on your intended use of your property as opposed to an outright ban. So I think each case is going to be different. And I also agree with you on another point that you're making that this decision, while in addition to, I think, unfortunately missing the boat and not invoking the necessary prohibition language and resting its decision very simply on that. This is a summary, a summary prohibition. You didn't provide any rationale. You violated a statute, end of story. In addition to that, it doesn't provide sufficient guidance. Assuming a case does present, legitimately present the issue of whether or not the regulations being imposed are reasonable. That is, we're allowing you to go forward, but here are the restrictions we're imposing. I don't think this, this decision really is is very helpful in providing guidance nor could it be because it wasn't even about that. It was really about a prohibition on my land and also virtually throughout the entire city. So it really can't provide much guidance on that. But I do think, and again, it sounds like it's always an easy reason. Oh, it depends on each case. But I do think that whether or not a local government can outright prohibit by making the necessary showing or impose regulations or restrictions on the dimensions of a freestanding solar array is going to depend on each case. And it's fascinating to see what will happen as I would assume more cases like this one will arise given the fact that solar energy is such a necessary source of clean renewable energy. And I would imagine that there will be more developers coming forward with proposed plans and legal challenges. Fair enough, legal challenges. That's what the statute anticipates. So I would like to see what will happen, especially right now. And I'll let you finish your thought, but
0: especially now with all of the programs, the government programs that are really designed to incentivize financially developers to create these types of solar arrays and, and renewable sources of energy. So I, that's just, I think it emphasizes your point. Okay. And and I don't think that your answer was a dodge at all. I think it's spot on that, that the answer really is that unless the legislature comes in and does something and clarifies the issue and tells planning boards with sufficient guidance how they're to approach the situation, particularly in residential neighborhoods, I think you're going to see a hodgepodge of results all throughout the state. And you're going to see a whole bunch of challenges. Because solar is not going away, and, and I think developers are going to have some incentives to, to develop these solar arrays for, for years to come. So I, I actually think what you said was spot on. I don't think it's a dodge at all, and, and I happen to agree with you. So I, I want to also shift gears really quickly. You guys always, at NELF, always, and you particularly, always have so much good stuff going on. What else do you have cooking these days?
1: Well, it's interesting because I had filed a brief earlier in the year in a case that will be heard in November involving a childcare facility, which is also protected use under paragraph three, Berlin Landing Realty Trust versus the town of Northborough. And I believe oral arguments scheduled for November 2nd. I just think that dovetails nicely with some of the points you and I were both making about what the statute provides and how arguably this decision Went was a miss, it went awry. And that case classically does involve the issue of reasonable or unreasonable regulations. Because in that case, to make a quick, a quick summary, in that case, the town is allowing the developer to build a child care facility, but is imposing a certain generally applicable zoning step requirement requirements for. Which is tailored for industrial uses that border residential districts and is a 100 foot setback requirement. And just to be very brief about it, because I know that time is always of the essence for for attorneys, but that case raises two prongs, two issues under the reasonable regulation requirement. Now, as we already discussed, the solar energy provision we know says, local government cannot either prohibit or unreasonable regulate without justification. And it doesn't say anything about what is reasonable regulation. So I would say there's more deference Going back to the solar energy issue for a second, I would in your sort of or telling question, well, what what, what do we have coming up? What, what can we predict about the outcomes? I would say that what's interesting is that the legislature in the solar energy provision in 1985 was more differential to local government because it didn't restrict reasonable regulations. It bars unreasonable regulations without a justification, but it doesn't doesn't say what a reasonable regulation must entail. We turn to the child care facility paragraph, which is written very much like the original, now the Dover amendment codified in paragraph two of section three of chapter 48. There shall not be a prohibition of a child care facility, but it can be subject to reasonable regulations concerning those name dimensional requirements that I had read to you a little while back, one of which is setback. So this concerns the classic issue of we, the town of Northborough, have this 100 foot setback requirement in any industrial use that borders a residential district. Well, I argued for NELF, in in the brief that was filed for the case, which will this case will be heard in November, that for two reasons, the town violated the that statutory protection when imposed, enforced that one hundred foot setback requirement in Berlin Landing. That is the developer's uh, desired use of its property, which happens to be an industrial zone to build a childcare facility, that happens to support a residential district. Point one. As the court has said on a few occasions, the reasonable regulation requirement is, in, in effect, rational basis review in part. The city or town must, on its face, provide, there must be a justification for why they're imposing such and such, such a zoning requirement. And as applied to particular facts of the case, it must make sense. And that's when we get into the issue that I was discussing earlier about the balancing of Is this so unduly restrictive of my intended use that for all practical purposes I can't build the desired childcare facility? And what's the public benefit? The countervailing. Okay, so here it doesn't arguably it doesn't survive. I argue it doesn't survive either prong. That is, on its face, it makes no sense to talk about this childcare facility and a hundred-foot setback because guess what? It's a protected use. It's not an industrialist. It's allowed as a right in the neighboring residential district. But the property owner happens to own the property in the in the industrial district. So in a sense, it doesn't serve any rational, it doesn't serve any legitimate local concern about, as you were talking about, preserving residential neighborhoods, or in this case, protecting, if you will, the invasion on a residential neighborhood of a bordering industrial use. Those are valid concerns, but if this would have been allowed, if the property owner happened to own property in the residential, since it would have been allowed as of right, as a protected use, you can't prohibit. The childcare facility, just as you can't pre- pre- prohibit it in an educational or educational or religious institution in, in a residential district, unlike the solar energy provision, which allows that out, you can prohibit it if you make the not sufficient showing in the residential district. But the point is, it doesn't serve any any legitimate purpose at all, even on its face, and as applied in this case. If you impose a one hundred foot setback, there happened to happen to be wetlands behind the facility. Which would limit, I think, one wing of this facility to such small square footed dimension that you couldn't even have a few children playing in that corner, let alone an entire school or, or, or number of children playing in it. What, and the court has already recognized in other cases that children need room to play. That's the purpose. And so you would restrict one wing to such a I parents have recognized that as well. As you can speak to it. So. Northern Landing is before the court under the reasonable regulation prong. And I, those are just sort of two bases I argued that I think it should fail the imposition of this, this setback requirement. So that's one case I'm working on. And, and best of luck on that case. I'll certainly be watching it carefully.
0: Why don't you uh, tell the listeners where they can find more information on NELF? As you've already
1: identified, advocating on behalf of property owners, businesses, employers, and anyone who's interested in learning more about what we do or interested in becoming a supporting member of NELF, can check out our website, which is at www.newenglandlegal.org. And on our website, there are many opportunities to read more about the cases we filed, as you've already referred to, the briefs we filed, decisions we've, we've received as a result, we think indirectly of our briefs, and opportunities to join NELF as a supporter and to learn about other events we host, and or co host in addition to the bulk of our work, which is, is, is the filing of the amicus briefs. If I can just quickly define our legal footprint, it's state and federal courts within New England and also at the U.S. Supreme Court. Usually it might be in another federal public court outside of New England. If the particular party that we would like to support has a strong New England presence, And that happens sometimes given the national economy. That's our our general mission, our footprint, and also our website for anyone interested in learning more about what we do and also interested in deciding whether or not to support us. Ben, keep up the
0: impressive work and thank you so much for joining today. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you are involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at legal judgments, on Twitter at legal underscore judgments and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in judgments.